Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 346. This program is dedicated by the Talashevsky family in honor of Mashiach now. We're coming literally from a unique Purim, Purim Meshulish. Every Purim is unique, obviously, but in Purim Meshulish means a three, a triple Purim, a three-way Purim in a way, a three-dimensional Purim. It began on Friday, the 14th of Adar, the Purim everywhere outside of Yerushalayim and cities that are surrounded by a wall from the time of Yeshua. Purim. Shabbos is Shushan Purim. In Shushan, and hence in all in Yerushalayim and other such cities, the Purim on Shabbos, but because Shabbos has limitations, therefore it extends to Sunday. So we have three complete days of festivity. So while it's true, physically speaking, Purim, let's say, outside of, United, outside of Israel is on Friday, but still, we live with Eretz Yisrael, we daven toward Eretz Yisrael, and we therefore try to incorporate into our lives also the events of Sunday, Shabbos and Sunday, and hence the three Purim Mishulish. The Rebbe, 1981, in a letter, Purim letter, connected to Purim, said that we should continue the custom of Matanus Lavienim also on Sunday, even outside of Eretz Yisrael. And obviously the Simcha. So here we're coming straight from that. So of course, uh, the, it's all good to begin with the opening b- b- blessing and in the Sinus Kayach, we get empowered by Purim's Simcha Peretz Geder, a completely unbridled and unlimited joy, Adelo Yoda Supra, rational joy that permeates our lives and the intention is that it should affect and impact us all year round. So we should have a very simchadika year, in a revealed way, in a healthy way, until we, and we, that itself should begin to lead us into the Geula Amitiz Vashlema, the Simcha Selem Al Reshim of the Geula. So we will be talking about some uh, post-Purim this, uh, ideas, We've got many questions that continue to ask about Purim, discuss Purim, so being that we are literally coming from these three days, I will speak about that as well, but let's begin with the more immediate, which is coming going forward, we began Parsha Kisisa, and we go now also into Parsha Pora. This coming Shabbos will be the second, the, th- the, the third, I'm sorry, the third of the Dalit Parshas, begins with Parsha Shkolim, or Shabbos Mavarchim Adar, and then Pasha Zacher, the Shabbos before Purim last week, and now Pasha Pada, which is the Pasha Pada Duma. And this will lead into the fourth that will be on Rishchidish Nisan, Shabbos Mavarchim Nisan, which was a Pasha Sachidish. So let's speak a moment about that. I've received quite a few questions as well about the Pashas, but let me begin the other direction. And one of the great challenges and one of the maybe most common question, I won't say most common, but very common, very uh, popular, if you wish. I don't like the word popular on this topic, but a very repeated question that people ask on a personal basis, very different because each person is challenged differently. How do you deal with setbacks, especially serious setbacks? And this could be things that are, let's begin on a more milder form. A person loses a job. Uh, a person has some type of personal trauma, something happens not the way we planned it. On a more severe level, it can be a death, a loss, tragedy. It can be a divorce. Um, all these things are part of reality. And over the, this is already the eighth year that we're doing My Life Chassidah Supplied, hundreds and hundreds of questions have been about this topic. And of course, there are many different types of answers, especially when you customize it, each person has their particular situation. But there are also general principles. And one of the answers comes from this week's Pasha, including from the Pasha Pada, which corresponds with Pasha Kisisa this year. Also not so common, because Purim being on Friday is also not common. This will also cause that Pesach will be, every Pesach will be on a Shabbos. It's the most rare of all kviyas, uh, of all scheduling of the holidays. So Pasha Kisisa and Pasha Pada come together. So in the last sikhet that the Rebbe spoke to us, in Tov Shinun Beis, the last sikhet was actually, Vayaka was the last Shabbos. 
But the last sikh that I've edited completely was Pashtun Kisisa Tafshinun Beis, 1992. And only afterwards did we understand the gravity and the significance of the Sikha. The Rebbe began in a very interesting way. He said that though every Parsha encompasses central themes and, and ideas and is a uh, fundamental Parsha, but yet there are some Parshas that stand out in their all-encompassing nature. He said, Parsha Kisisa is one of them. That is, he said, the Rebbe said, it has the whole Seder Ishtashlis. From the best moments to the most challenging moments to transforming the challenging into the positive. And he speaks about, Pasha Kisisa has, of course, talks about the story of Moshe Rabbeinu receiving the Luchas Roshenis on Sinai, Matan Teda, the first tablets. Talks about the Cheta Egel, which is one of the greatest tragedies in history, the Jews building a golden calf. And then it talks about Moshe's encounter with God, begging for forgiveness and transforming this most negative, most, most tragic event, which was a replay of Chetet Sadas, the eating from the tree of knowledge, the beginning of creation, and ultimately prevails, and comes back in Yom Kippur, after 80 days of begging and praying, 120 days from when he first received the first tablets, when the Sarasat Dibras by Shavuos comes down to Yom Kippur with the second tablets which in some ways is even greater than the first, as the Rebbe explains, from Chazal. So you have the whole story of life. Innocence, purity, the fall, and the return in an even greater way than you were in the first place. The Rebbe establishes in that sikha that these are the three central points of all life, of all Seder Shtashos, the entire cosmic order, and the way God creates existence, and, and points out how it's these three, point, these three stages are there in every area of life. It was only be a little more than a week later when the Rebbe had the stroke. When you look back at the Sikha, you see it's like laying out a blueprint of what you do in all given situations. In addition to being a type of sahakal, like a summary, a summation for the challenges that would come ahead this Pasha Kisisa. So it corresponds with this week's Pasha that we'll be reading. And in it you actually find this answer to the question of setbacks. The greatest setback was after they received the, the most important point in history, event, the most momentous event in history, the revelation of the divine of Anoich Hashem at Sinai, at Har Sinai, the giving of the tent of Aserah giving us the ability as Chassidus cites from Medrash, to transform the material world that it should become Kedusha, holiness. Not just to draw in spiritual energy, but before the Matan Teda was Exeda, a split that you could not connect spirit and matter were two different worlds. And by Matan Teda was a transformation. And yet 39 days later, the Jewish people Jewish people, they transgress the greatest sin of all, Avedazara. Second commandment, don't build other gods, and they build a golden calf. So you could think, and then what, what seems to happen then is Hashem, God tells Moshe Rabbein, you know, they messed up. They betrayed me after all this. And very deliberately, it wasn't like a mistake. Yes, it was due to miscalculation with Moshe, but they did something which was unthinkable. And build yourself a new nation. I have enough with them, basically, God says. And Moshe refuses. What does he do? He turns this liability into a tremendous asset. We will dig deeper, find a deeper connection to God, deeper love, a deeper connection from God to us, and a deeper connection from us to God. The reverse order. Because tshuva, Moshe's beseeching God, eliciting in this week's Pasha the Yud Gimel Midas Arachim, the 13 attributes of compassion, divine attributes of compassion, revealing the deepest secrets of God, talking to God in the most intimate way, show me your face, and ultimately God says, I will show you my back, but I will also show you my face, as the Rebbe explains in Tav Shemem Ches, where the Rebbe explains, where the Rebbe explains, 
Well, the Pasuk says, you should read, You'll see my back and my face, but you'll see by not looking. So Moshe reaches the pinnacle, the highest levels of divine revelation, to the etzim itself, all through the negative. Meaning that when you believe in the cause, you believe in the connection and the truth of it, there's nothing that will stop you. No is not an option. And Moshe knocked and knocked and knocked and finally prevailed where Hashem says, God says, Salachti kidvarecha. I've forgiven, as you, I've forgiven them as you've spoken. In other words, you prevailed over me. And then, hence, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. All born in this week's Pasha out of a Yurida, a, a tremendous setback. It's a lesson for history, a lesson for each one of us of what, what's possible when you truly want and do not give up and definitely do not resign yourself and surrender to whatever the setback, whatever the challenge was. And what happens? Moshe Rabbeinu comes back with a second luchas, which on one hand you'd think is a lower level, says the Gemara and Medrash say, and the Gemara say no. They were not for this whole chapter. We, the luchas Hushenis would have only included Chum Shetera and Sefer Yeshua. Or one place it says only the Aseris Adibris. Chumish. The Luchashniyas gave us also Medrashim, a goddess, Halacha. So the whole Tereshim al And more than that, all the Sfarim, even the Sfarim after Yeshua, only due to the fact that the Yerida brought a greater Aliyah. That's why it says, Altid Steyr, don't be in pain that now that you have Luchashniyas, where you think, okay, they're somewhat inferior. No. In many ways, they're even greater. Yes, on one hand, they came through a descent, but this descent, when you transform it, brings a far greater strength. So the chassidus applied of this is very obvious. Whatever situation you're in, whether it's collective or individual, we've gone through challenges, especially in the last year. People have had losses, deaths, family, friends. And it's still not over. It's still, when I say it's not over, I mean COVID is still here. The Ebrister should bless that everything else should be over. No more pain, no more loss, no more death. Everyone should have a complete refuel shlema. And at the same time, it has brought out the best in many of us. Hopefully in all of us. And the same thing on an individual level. Whatever we go through, you can get through it as we learn from this week's Pasha. And Pasha Parah is a similar theme. What's Pasha Parah? It's talking about how to heal from the impurity, the toxins of death. Death is one of the most severe things, the disconnection, the severing between soul and body. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, Niskarkam upon of Shalmoshe, his face became ashen, very disturbed. How will we purify from this death? Now Moshe knew that God can purify from anything. He heard the different Taharis, Zov, Nida, Mitzayda, and so on, that God told him, here's how you purify Yet this disturbed him. As the Rebbe explains, the Shloshim of the Rebbe Tzachai Mushka was Pasha Parah, Tav Shem 1988. And you could see the Rebbe speaking about himself with anguish. He said, Moshe didn't understand that God gives and God takes and God can heal even from death. Moshe learned Chassidus, Chachmed Atzilus. Couldn't understand all that, that, that the soul continues on. But he was not consoled because this was all in the mind. Emotionally, that severing, even for one second, when you see a disconnect, even for one second, it's disturbing when you take it personally. So Hashem has to say, that's Pasha Pada. I will show you how. Whenever you have Zeus, it means Marabetz Boyev Emezeh or Zeus. He points with his finger. Because you have a difficulty with it, I will personally show you how it's done. And he gave him the mitzvah of Parah Aduma, which is a chok, a mitzvah that we don't understand exactly, but Chassidus still explains. Because Parah Aduma combines Ratzin and Shuv, water and fire, the ash, Efer HaParah, that remains after the, 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 the Parah Aduma, the red heifer, is offered. You mix it with Mayim Chayim, living water. Ratzin Veshuv is the secret to life. 
We've discussed this in previous um, years. I'm not going to go through all the details. But it also tells you, even after our death, whether it's a physical death, whether it's a spiritual death, whether any form of mandanofel medalge ikrimis, every form of descent and setback is a type of death, that the death is meant to bring a greater form of life, greater connection. So of course we prefer not to have these painful moments. But if we do, we know that we have a way through it and a way out and a way to transform and create even greater life. Because how much more do we appreciate our loved ones when we don't physically see them? That's the goal, not to forget them, to remember them even more. And then when Chisa Mesim happens, and then the reunification of soul and body and matter and spirit, which of course was given by Matan Teda, that power will become a permanent fixture in life. Then we'll appreciate and see how all this is transformed, like the Luchashniyas that come after the concealment. So there's the, there's the state of Aliyah, a heightened state, a state of innocence, the Yerida, the descent, and then the transformation. The three stages in life. And when we understand life as a journey, and not as static positions, a journey, a narrative, and you see things through, you realize no matter where you are, you're always going further. It's always leading you to another place, to a better place and a greater place. So there you have just a few brief lessons that really carry lessons that are critical for each of us. And even if we're not going through any particular difficulty, thank God. But it's always important to know this world has these three stages. That's how it was made. You have the Eden Sof Lifneat Simpson, the divine energy, the divine infinite light that was seamless and shapeless and that filled all of existence, all of existence that would be completely divine consciousness. That Simpson addition, God's concealing it all to allow for an independent entity, the Yerida. And then comes what the Kavona, the intention to make a Dira Betachtem that even the, in the existence that's post Simpson should come to experience pre Simpson reality all the way back to the divine source, to Atmos itself. And it's Davkin Tachtenim. Not in the higher worlds. In the lowest of worlds, that's where we have the power to transform this dark world. When we do, we reveal the highest levels and beyond levels. And all in a revealed way. One more point in Pasha Kisisa. The end of the Pasha we read that Moshe came down. And this also demonstrates the great Aliyah, the great revelation that came specifically through the descent, when he came down with the second tablets, his face was shining with such a divine light that he could not look at him. So Moshe put on a, what's called a mask, but not a mask to conceal, a mask because it was an er atzmi. But it's interesting, when he spoke to them, he took off the mask when he spoke Teda. Why? Because Teda reflects the inner etzem and primius of Moshe, and that they can receive. It was only when they were involved in worldly matters, as Chassidus explains in Ayim Beis and other places, that when they were involved in Vedas Abirudim, the mask was essentially saying, we're not yet ready in the material world to receive such essential light. But it's there. And he explains there that it's not a, a garment to conceal, it's a garment to separate so they can do their work in this material world. And then will come a point and God will reveal himself. Our master will no longer have a garment. And we will see the master of the face itself. All this explained in that Check it out. It's a really powerful sikh on many different levels. So with that... Since I do receive quite a few questions on this parsha, I believe much of it is being answered by what we've discussed right now. But let's go through the questions. I always feel, in a way, very gratified to listen to hear your questions. I feel honored that you write to me, which is, I don't believe, to me, but to this program, which has a, is a public service. And so, therefore, it's always uh, gratifying to read these questions. And then try to answer them. This time I did a little differently. I started with a general principle, general lessons, which I believe answer many of the questions once you understand the whole picture of the Pasha. As is often the case, there are two ways to answer questions. One is you can answer question by question by question, 
Or, as we've learned from the Rebbe and from Chassidus in general, and Teir even more general, you, you see the entire picture in a different way, and then automatically many questions get answered. So just to go through it quickly, uh, the questions. Here. It says that Moshe was so holy, a light shined from his face, from this week's parasha. And people complained and asked Moshe to wear a face, ma- face covering. Is it possible that because Mashiach's arrival is imminent, imminent we are in a high state of holiness and also have to cover our faces with masks? I wouldn't compare it at all. I believe I already spoke about this previous weeks. The masks we wear now are a precaution do not to carry, not to pass on or, to, or in any way be affected by the, the virus. Doesn't, I would not compare it at all. The fact is mask, mask doesn't mean all masks are the same. There the mask was an er atzmi. Here it's not an er atzmi. In, if you talk conceptually, the idea that we get through this period of the COVID and we become greater people and kinder people and, and gentler people and more powerful in a good way in holiness, then in that sense you could say, yes, this momentary so-called concealment led to a greater revelation. But especially in Ayin Bezi, he makes it very clear that the Lavush is not a concealer with Moshe Rabbeinu, whereas by us it is a concealer. The whole point of it is to conceal and to block, to filter, and so on. There's not discussion now about the merit or the, the virtues or lack of virtue of masks. It's just to talk about the, the conception. I would not compare the two. Is there general similarities? And it's hard to ignore the, the, the comparison, but I think you have to distinguish between the obvious for the obvious reasons. Um, <clears throat> Okay, if the people who saw the miracles of the Exodus of Egypt and the revelations on Mount Sinai could still sin and make a golden calf, what chance do we, who didn't see these miracles in our generation, have to stay on the right path and steer away from sin? Okay, very good question, and I believe it's answered in what we spoke about. First of all, remember, the greater the soul, the greater challenges it has. You know, they ask about Odom and they couldn't control themselves and not eat from the tree of knowledge, especially according to the opinion that was made from uh, that the, the tree of knowledge was grapes, a grapevine. Had they waited a few hours, three hours, they would have made kiddush on it and it would have been a mitzvah. But you remember, they were great souls. They were the greatest because they encompassed all souls. They also had to deal with the greatest challenge because there was no other else people on earth, so they encompassed all the Yetzirahs. Imagine, eight billion Yetzirahs that they all had in, in them and as manifest in the Nochesh HaKadmeni and the serpent. So the resistance and the stakes were so high, so you can imagine how much energy was imposed, how much energy was exerted by the negative side to make sure that they eat from this tree. So you remember the Jews, because they were on such a high level after Matan Teda, whenever you're on a very high level, you're also more vulnerable. The holier the state, the more sensitive you have to be. That's one point to be made. A second point is this. Sometimes when you get things, revelations from above, you don't always appreciate it. The Rebbe explains why the people, human beings, lived very long in the beginning of creation. Because it was like, spiritually speaking, like children, God, the first 26 generations, especially the first 10 generations, it was God taking care of them. The long life was not due to their effort. It was due as a gift from above, like you would give children. But when you give a gift from above, you always stand the risk that people will take it for granted. And that's what happened. So after the Mabal, Hashem established the limit, the parameter of 120 years. Now you'll have to earn your way. So there's less the years, but you have more work that you have to do on your own. So it's more, more internalized. The same thing after Matan Teda. Though the Jews had suffered greatly for many years in Mitzrayim, and it was no longer the beginning of creation, but it was still somewhat from the top down, which is why Purim comes actually, because the Jews could argue, you know, you imposed it upon us, Matan Teda. Comes Purim, as the Gemara says in Shabbos, that the Jews accepted it on their own. So you see there was an element of still being given from above. When it's given above, like the Gemara says, a person always wants, one has more pleasure and desires, one rates of betisha. He prefers one measure of his own that it works, comes through his effort than nine that come as a gift. Because nine may be more. They are nine times as much, but easier to blow. The famous example of Rabbi Yitzchak about Tisha, about Shabbos Chazain, the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av. 
So he says that every Jew is shown the Beis Amigdash from a distance. And he gives a marshal that a king sewed a beautiful, weaved a beautiful shirt for his son. The son gave it to the son as a gift. The son wore it, wore it but, but then it tore. So then he went and sewed him and weaved even a better one. And again, the same thing happened. So the third time he said, this time I'm going to weave an even more beautiful one, but this time I'm going to show it to you from a distance. Once you earn it through your yearning, your gaguim, then I know that you will make sure to protect it. He says the first shirt is the base by Yisrishin, the second one is by Yisheni, and the third is Migdashad Nekeni Yedecha by Yishlishi, which will be a Nitzchi. So the Jews after Matan Tater, though they received an unprecedented revelation, they will not be Matan Tater again, as Chassidus cites. Chassidus brings. But it was still in the Sinus Kayach from above. And because of that, there can be the Ayin Hara, which is also what Rashi brings and Midrashim bring, that because in a way they all the fanfare and all the fireworks, it was an Ayin Hara, the negative energy came to complain. Are they really worthy? And look what happened. They did fall with a, with a golden calf. 120 days later, Yom Kippur is in silence, more humble, quiet. So that's the second point. And the third point, remember this, even though that was a derdeya, a very enlightened age, and the neshamas were higher than neshamas today, but we come with their strength and all the cumulative strength of all the souls through generations. None is al We are like midgets that stand on the shoulders of giants. So though we ourselves individually are weaker souls, but collectively we're more stronger than all because we have all their kaychas, all the blessings, all the millions or billions or trillions, if you wish, mitzvahs and mitzvahs nefers of all the generations. So with that strength, that's why we are the generation that will march into the Geula. As the Alter Rebbe says, that Moshe was the humblest when he was, says he was the humblest man that walked on earth. Why was he so humble? Because his generation was a very enlightened generation. They also had their faults and their flaws, beginning with this eating from the, I'm sorry, beginning with the worshipping of the golden calf. But he saw the last generations, the footsteps of Mashiach, meaning the Ekev, the, the heel of history. And he saw that people, though they don't have all these revelations, they say, we don't see miracles like they did. And still people make an effort. That humbled Moshe Rabbeinu. So that's finally the ultimate answer. That we have koiches, even more than all, of the, all the generations before, because we come with theirs and the little that we have. And as such, yes, we do have much more power to steer away from sin. Next question. What are the 13 attributes of mercy and how can we use them in our daily lives to convince Hashem to send us the blessings we need and deserve? Well, we say it all day, Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachem, B'chanun, the 13 attributes. There's, diff- there's actually three different ways to how we count the 13. The Rebbe has a letter about it. I cite it and uh, translate it in the book 60 Days, which covers, of course, the period of El and Tishrei. Month of El is the month when Meshra Rabbeinu was up on the mountain the third time and received then the 13 attributes. So the whole month of El is considered the Chedesh Harachimim, because then radiate the Yud Gimel From there comes the Moshel that Al Tareb gives, the famous Moshel of the king in the field, that you have the Yud Gimel They are definitely spiritual energies, mysterious ones, but they have the power to break through any given situation, and God reveals them to Moshe when Moshe is praying for forgiveness. So we have the power to invoke these Yud Gimel as we do in davening, and especially during the months of El and Tishrei, when it radiates in full strength. But we can access them and, and reveal them all the time. Perhaps not with the same intensity as El and Tishrei. So the answer is that when a person's in need, by all means, that's what Phil in general is, especially when you invoke the Yud Gimel Midas You're invoking these 13 attributes, compassions, divine channels of compassion and mercy that have the ability to, to reverse and transform any given situation. So the answer is very straightforward. Just do it with the right kavona and intention. And uh, you don't need to know all the intentions of the 13 midas. You just need to know, to, sometimes you read them. If you understand what they mean, by all means. In Kabbalah and Chassidus, there's more discussion in each one, what each one accomplishes. 
But generally speaking, they are the 13 attributes. They correspond to the, the, the Yud Gimel, Gimel Tikkun Edikna, the 13 strands of the beard, which are also Hamshacha from that level. Basically, in the language of Kabbalah and they're Mamshach from Atik, from the deepest levels of Keser, all the way into the conscious faculties and to the conscious existence of our lives. If you want more information, I would suggest, if you want it in English, go to 60 Days, my book, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. It's a whole section on the 13 attributes. Look in the, the Yom Kippur, uh, I think it's in the Yom Kippur section of the prayers. But it's easy to find, just look around. And in the Hebrew, there's a letter from the Rebbe printed in the Hesophis of the Kutisikas Chelik Dalet, volume 4, about what they are, the different opinion of the order. The meaning of it, I would suggest the easiest way to look is go to Sefer Likutim from the Tzamech Tzadik, go to Rachamim, Yudgimom Midas Rachamim. That's an encyclopedia of Chassidus. It's structured by different entries in Aleph Bey's order. So there's a, goes from Aleph to Tov. You go to the volume Kufresh, and there's an entry on Rachamim where you can get more information on these 13 attributes. Why did Moshe break the Luchus? That seems very disrespectful to God who made an effort to make it to make, it, to make them and entrust them to Moshe. Couldn't Moshe have expressed his anger in a more productive way, in more productive ways? Moshe could have just given the luchas back to God and said, here, you hold on to this until we solve the golden calf problem, and then I'll take it back. Okay. Well, this gives me an opportunity to mention another sikh of the Rebbe, a very classic one, Simchas Tevet Tov Shemem one of those rare fabrengans that whoever was there remains etched in your memory. Well, every fabrengan was unique, but this was <laughs> extraordinary. And um, the, the Rebbe crying on a simchas state of fabrengan before our coffers, explaining the last Rashi and Chumash. I'm going to chazer that whole sikha right now, but just regarding this, uh, this uh, question. Last Rashi talks about this as well, talks about the theme of this parsha. Rashi concludes... That the Abish but says, for all the signs and wonders that Mesha did before the eyes of all of Israel. So Rashi says, What did he do? He broke the luchas. He shattered the tablets. And Hashem says, Thank you for shattering them. What kind of statement is that? And with this you conclude. I mean, we, we fast on 17th of Tammuz because of the Shvirasaluchas, the breaking of the tablets which was 40 days when Emesha comes down from the mountain after he sees the golden calf. So briefly, the Rebbe explains, and it's based on the Rashi in this week's Pasha, Moshe was not angry. Of course he was upset, but he didn't break the Luchas out of anger. That's a big mistake. Moshe had the presence of mind. He knew what he was carrying. He was carrying the Luchas out of Shainus. He's the most <laughs> divine... God forbid even when a Sefer Teda by accident falls, it's a real serious event. They fast, it's exeda and all that. There's a sign of negative things. Here to take not just a Sefer Teda, the Luchas Hashem is that God engraved and God shaped and in, in, in every possible way, and to deliberately throw them and shatter them, you can imagine it was not out of anger. It was very deliberate because one of the reasons given because Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to protect the Jewish people. The luchas represented the contract between husband and wife, God, and the Jewish people. Yom Chasenosi Zamat and Teira. Teira Zamat and Torah was a canopy, like a wedding canopy. It was a wedding day. Husband and wife, they committed to each other. And here the wife had betrayed the husband. The Jewish people went and built a false god, another god. But Moshe in his wisdom and his compassion and his sensitivity did something that no one would have thought of, only a real leader does. He realized that if he gives them the luchas, they will then have received the contract. By shattering the luchas, the, 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 the tablets, he basically tore up the contract, the, the ksuba, the marriage contract. And he could say to God, they listened, they heard the Ten Commandments, but they didn't, fully, they didn't receive it, so halachically they're not yet fully liable. And Moshe was not playing a game, because he was looking for a deeper connection that's why he also said, erase my name from this Sefer. Which is similar to shattering the tablets. What do you mean? This Sefer is Tedus Chaim. It's the connection of a soul to God. It's one thing Moshe sacrifices his material life, but also his very soul. But he knew there's something deeper than all of this. There's the Jewish people and God that they are one. And I will do whatever it takes. 
So his act was the greatest act, even greater than taking the Jews out of Egypt and the Kriyasyamsu of the parting of the sea and Matantir itself. And everything else that happened, that's why Rashi says, he chooses, what did he do before all the people? And the last Pasuk in Chumash that's dedicated to Moshe's greatness, this was the greatest thing of all. Because the other things were powerful. But here you saw what a true Moshe is, a true leader. That's briefly the answer. So, so it's exactly very deliberate. It was not anger. It wasn't about protecting the Luchas, it was about protecting the people. What's the Tatum from Moshe's point of view if there's no people? And then he marched back up, and what happens? He gets the Luchas Achrenes. And in the Arun, we have both Luchas the complete second tab- tablets and the shattered first ones. Why do you still have the shattered ones? Because they represent, both the tablets and their shattering represent unbelievable Mesiris Nefesh and commitment and connection. Which only f- emphasizes even more, even more the point that we've been discussing before, before about how you transform setbacks and negative into positive. Can you imagine that each of us, even if there's a betrayal, even if there's a violation, there's a form of, um, uh, uh, yes, well, one violates another person. So it's not justifying it. But if you dig deeper, you can find redemption in every given situation. And that redemption is even greater because it comes after the break, after betrayal, after an infidelity even, like it was with the Jewish people and God. Okay. So whatever happened back then that we read in this week's Pasha is now also relevant and we live with now because we have these challenges today in different ways. And we learn the lessons from all these elements here. But the goal is no, not to justify anything negative, it's to recognize that we have to move forward. And if you work hard enough, even in a marriage that may have been betrayed, even if you've betrayed yourself and other forms of setbacks that we, as we discussed, if you work hard enough, as Moshe did, you can reach, dig deeper and find even a greater set of tablets. And with that, also redeem the shattered ones of the first tablets. And I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it many times. I've seen people who worked hard, went through very difficult moments, even deliberate problems that people created, created themselves but they picked themselves up, they dug deeper, and have created a deeper relationship than what have been before. Are, those that, are there those that didn't do that? Yes, because people have free will, and not everybody's ready to do the work. But if you do the work, and we have the moisture within us, all of us can achieve this. The next question. Why was it necessary to create a second luchas of the Ten Commandments instead of just repairing the broken first luchas and putting it back together like a jigsaw puzzle? So the answer is very clear. The goal is not just putting it back together. It was a betrayal. That has to be remembered. It comes now to digging deeper and receiving a second set of tablets, which is what a Baal is not just you fix what happened, you become back at Sadiq. Now you want to, be, you want to have the mile of a Baal But Mokim Tshuva, they can't even stand there. It's a different qualitative difference. It's not about, okay, you'll do Tshuva, let's go back to being the Sadiq. First of all, that's not possible because we don't just go back. We have to redeem. We have to transform. There's always the element of hishapcha. You always want tshuva ma'ava, tshuva from love, that, that, that transforms zochis, nasalei zdenus kezochis. Zdenus nasalei kezochis. That deliberate crimes that become actually like merits. That's the ultimate goal. Not just to erase the past, not just to fix it, but to create something new and greater. That's what the second luchas are. But you still don't forget the first luchas because of the reasons we described. You want to have both milas, tzaddikim and balei tshuva, like lasovet tzaddikaya b'tiyufta, when Mashiach comes, he'll cause, that'll cause even tzaddikim to do tshuva. So it should have both qualities. All three stages in the Rebbe's words of kisisa nunbeis, tafshin nunbeis. And finally, what exactly was the golden calf? And if God truly believes he is superior, why should he be jealous and upset what people danced, that people danced around a cow during an, intermission, during an intermission of the giving of the Ten Commandments? Okay, interesting way of putting it. Well, God is not jealous of the golden calf. He doesn't need uh, to be jealous. It's, it's our betrayal, not his betrayal. It's not about you betrayed him. 
Why is Avedis Zara such a great crime? The three that you're supposed to die for before you, you, uh, 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 you, you transgress. Yarek Val Yaver. Not because God is jealous. God cares. You want to bow to a golden calf or to a piece of wood, God forbid, or, or a, a star or the sun or the moon or a tree or a stone. Is because it's the cardinal cornerstone of connection to God. Why do people build an Ave Zara in the first place? The Rambam explains, because they want something they can relate to. That means you want a God in your image, when in truth God created us in the divine image. You don't want to have God on God's terms. You want a God on your terms. So that really defeats the whole purpose of God. Once you don't have that commitment to something greater than you are, then it's about you. And now you found a God that's an, also an extension of you. It's like when someone says, I love unconditionally, but on my terms. The true connection, the whole purpose of a relationship is that we accept and recognize that there's a reality greater than our ego, greater than our needs. So once Avedizot is transgressed, once someone does that, God forbid, they cut off everything. Shabbos, Kashrus, and other things are also fundamental. But when, you, when a person transgresses, they're not undermining their very lifeline. Here, the whole idea of a God, that there is a God, comes also with the opposite. The second, the two, that's why the, two, the first two Saras uh, Hadibris are the basis of, like the Alter Rebbe says, the basis of all mitzvah says, says Hashem the basis of all Lesa says, they come together. Because a God means that you accept something greater than you are. And that means not having another God which is on your terms, which is what the Jews did then. They built a golden calf that they can see, that they can relate to. It may even have, then some people say, the Rebbe explains in one place, some other Mepharshim speak about it as well, that their kavana was they wanted a Rebbe. Moshe they saw was not coming back, they thought. They miscalculated. So they wanted a connection, but on their terms. So that is the critical component here. And that's why it was such a betrayal. That's why it had to be transformed. Okay. More discussion on Kisisa and Pasha Pada. You'll find in episodes 59, 109, 204, 249, and 254. These are the previous years. You can find them all at chassidusapply.com. It's a dedicated website to all things around chassidus, applying chassidus, including all the archives of all previous 345 episodes, including a place to submit any anonymous and totally confidential question. We don't even know who your name is or any contact. You just can write any question you like. Nothing is off limits. There are many questions. There is a backup, so it'll take a little time sometimes to address them all. But please, I encourage you and I invite you and I'm honored to receive your questions. You also find there all the essays, and this year the creative track from previous of the previous essay and, and creative uh, My Life Citizen Applied contest. You could find that. And now as well, a new program that I began just three weeks ago. Last night was the third episode of Tanya Applied. Beginning from the beginning of Tanya, a half-hour program every week, which you can check out as well, exodusapplied.com, plus plenty of resources on IMBase and Samagvov. IMBase, I give a daily class, and you can find there how to join that class via Zoom or YouTube or other platforms. And with that, let's move on. So now I have a bunch of post-Purim questions. It just was, there were so many, I don't think I can address them all. I also wanted to cover some other things. Let's see what we can accomplish in this um, the time we have allotted to us. Okay. So where are we now? We are, let's do a few podium questions. I'm going to do two that are follow-up directly to what was discussed last week. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it was my good fortune to become reacquainted with you recently after setting up my Android Auto and having your podcast showed up and having your podcast show up as I looked for educational Jewish content for my commute. It was a major loss for me not to be able to attend your talks for several decades. In any event, I'm writing to you with some additional information about Queen Esther post-Purim, which we discussed last week's Purim special episode, episode 345, which request you which, which request you had mentioned during your podcast on 9th, other February 21st, that was last, last Sunday. I had remembered reading years ago that Benjamin of Tudila writes about 
Esther's Ohel in his diary of travel circa 1170 in the 12th century. I found the relevant passage and two footnotes that also reference Sefer Adetus, which, which I did mention last week. I copied them below with the browser links. In another source, I also noted a theory or a tradition that Esther and Mordechai fled to Hamadan, which is where they're right now is they're considered to be their oil. There he points out that the Sefer Adetus mentions a different name of a city. Um, and we have here the name... Um, and there he writes that that can be correct, but then he tries to say maybe Hamadan pronounced differently. But here he quotes that the reason they fled to Hamadan was to avoid harm after Achashvedas died. I still need to do research where that comes from and what happened exactly, and if this is according to Torah sources as well. There's apparently a variant reading of the diary of Benjamin of Tadila, which places Esther's tomb, Esther's tomb in the Galil area which is what it says in Seder Adetus. So he discusses that there. Okay, and send some pictures. We know that, uh, that with this, the oil of Mordechai Nestor in Persia. Okay, so I thank you for that. I, I looked a little more around. I couldn't find anything. If this is indeed correct, that after Achashverosh died, Esther and Mordechai fled, because we know the, the climate there wasn't necessarily remained a friendly one. At the time of Purim, of course, it changed dramatically because of the miracle. Everything turned around. Vanapachu and Achashvedish was, was, uh, was influenced and um, persuaded by Esther. And it became like Yehud Yehudimeh But Purim still still Akata Avdad Achashvedish Anan. We still remain servants of Achashvedish. So there isn't very cl- much clarity what happened afterwards. At least what I've been able to find. I, again, I request any of you that may have more information, please pass it on. And with that, thank you for that. Okay. Another follow-up to last week's episode. If we call Psachia and Adasah by their Persian names, Mordechai and Esther, to show that the miracles of Purim were hidden within the natural current events of the time in Persia, then why is the entire Megillah written in Hebrew and not in Persian? Okay, can I explain there why... Hadassah and Psach and Hadassah are not the names used, but the names, they're Persian names, the transformation, which the Gemara does say is Minateda Manayin. How do you know that Mordechai Minateda? So we have a Posig Mardrod, and then we have an Hadassah, I'm sorry, um, Esther, Haster, Haster, Ponai. So he's asking, why is the entire Megillah not written in Persian? And just to amplify the question, for example, Sefer Daniel is not Aramaic, it's another language, but you have. The whole Gemara is written Loshna Rami, except for a few exceptions. And the Altareb explains because it's actually in Pasha Mishpatim Eir to transform the Golas, the language of that we speak in the in the in the in Golas, is part of the transformation of this world, making it a Dirabitahtain, a home for the divine in this world. So it's an interesting question. My response, even though I've not seen it explicitly, is though Purim did come to transform, and that's why Mordechai and Esther's names are Mordechai and Esther, it still does not mean that you don't have the hidden miracles. Even though God's name is concealed in the Megillah and it's hidden, it's uh, hinted to in certain verses, but it was still the hand of God. So it could very well be that the Megillah remains in Hebrew because it's about revelation. The only thing is it's a revelation that's coming from a concealed place. Sometimes you need complete concealment, or you need something that's Aramaic. Teresh Peh is even a further descent. Remember, then the day the Purim miracle happened between the Bayesishan and Bayesheni, those 70 years, and it says in, in, in Kabbalah, Kisferizan, the Chsidis brings it, that that level in many ways was a very high dimension of divine. However, it was still Golas, it was Golas Bavel, not Golas Edem. It was the Golas that came after this first temple. But still, it was revelation. So you can say that maybe it's like something in between. Like we know there's the level of revealed miracles, like Mitzrayim, Pesach. There's nature itself, which is also a miracle. Nature itself is a miracle. The very fact that God consistently is energizing and the consistency of the laws of nature is a miracle in its own way. And then there's hidden miracles. It's a miracle in nature. Since Purim is in between, 
It could be the miracle part is reflected by the Hebrew, and the nature, and the hidden nature is reflected by the few words that are used that are Persian. It's not just, by the way, Mordechai and Esther. There's other words that are Persian words used. Even the word Purim itself. Pur hu and And so on. Okay. But it's an interesting question. I'll just go th- quickly through a few qu- other questions, and you know what, I'll, I'll leave the others either for the coming weeks, even though it's already after Purim. Are Kahanim allowed to drink excessively on Purim? In other words, are they mechuyiv in the mitzvah of lipsume that a person is responsible to get intoxicated? So now getting into now the halacha, whether you're allowed to actually get intoxicated, there are many say that it doesn't mean that literally because of many other reasons. But the question with kahanim, we know a koyin that drinks is not allowed to do bechaz koyinim. And there's other element of koyin drinking because the Mashiach is about to come. A koyin is drunk, he can't serve in the Beis Amigdash. So what happens if Mashiach comes on Purim? But there are poskim that say that because of other issues, a koyin needs tar and betumah, that this... Purim wouldn't be an issue for them to drink. I've not seen an issue for Koyhanim to drink more than anybody else, but that's what I was able to uncover so far. If somebody has any more information on this, I'd be happy to share. What is the importance of giving Machsa Shekel? So Machsa Shekel that we give on Tainus Sester the day before Purim, number one, reminds us of the Shkolim that Haman threw for the lots in order to determine when to, when to pull off went to perpetrate his great genocide, Rahman al-Islam. So the tikkun of those shkalim is when we throw shkalim, so we proceeded by reading Pasha shkalim at the beginning of Adr, or before Adr. Higdim shkalehem l'shkalov. We proceed, our positive shkalim, zdokeh, tatzel memoves, that zdokeh preempts anything that Haman wanted to do. It also hints to the machtis shekel, which represents that our half and God's half, so our partnership with God. And there are other Muslim and indicate and other elements that the Mahsis Shekel can be explained before Purim, why we take it up before Purim. Okay. Um, let me see where we go from here. I'm going to do another Purim one. Did the Rebbe ever publicly say a Purim Tater, a lighthearted Tater-based joke, meant to make everyone laugh and increase joy on Purim? So, I actually... Okay. I believe it was Purim Tavshin Tazvav, but I may be wrong with the year. Please correct me. And to, we have the Rebbe speaking. He says, So I first want to just qualify. The Rebbe did not do things lighthearted just to make people laugh. But he did use the word Purim Tere. And the Purim Tere that they said, Lekach is Gematri Yayin. Someone asked the question, I, Lekach, when you add it up, is not Gematri Yayin, is Gematri 70. And Lekach is a different Gematri, Kufla Metches, 138. Yayin is 50 and, and Yadud, 70. So the person answered, take a little more Yayin, and it'll become like Lekach. He says, one second, if I double Yayin, it's more than Lekach. It's 140. So he says, so take a little more Lekach. But then it becomes even more than the Yayin. So the Rebbe said, the person says, so you keep taking until you come to a point that either you can't distinguish between Arur Ham and Baruch Mordechai, so you won't be able to distinguish definitely between Lekach and Yayin, or something will straighten out somewhere. So that was the Purim Tere that Rebbe said. A few other times he mentioned it. So that was one example. They said it wasn't just to elicit a, a laughter. It's just the Purim is about going beyond regular discussions. So Simcha or Tzchoik, the Gdusha, is not frivolous, obviously. It's about going beyond the regular. That's why you sometimes you say something like that. That lifts people's spirits to a greater place. Like it says, the Milsa B'dichasa. Before learning to open up people's minds, expand minds, you say something that is humorous. Okay. Another question. <laughs> Some are interesting questions. There are three Avedas, murder, idolatry, and adultery. 
that one must prefer to be one must prefer to be killed before disobeying. Why was it okay then for Esther to violate adultery in order to save the Jews, but not okay for Mordechai to bow to Haman and the idol he wore in his necklace in order to save the Jews? If Mordechai bowed to Haman, it would have solved the problem, and then Esther would not have had to be adulterous with Achashverosh. So first of all, let's make this clear: there was no adultery. Adultery is a eshesish. Someone that's married to someone has, God forbid, a relationship with another man. In this case, according to all opinions, there was no form of adultery at all. Even if she was married, according to opinions, she had not remained married, she divorced. And most opinions that she was a niece of Mordechai or she was not, she was single. Now, is it appropriate for a single? But it's not Gilad It's not appropriate. But Pekuach Nefesh here, so think about it like this. Imagine somebody was able to convince Hitler, not to pull off the Holocaust. And everybody would remember the Messias Nefesh. You think Esther was happy with what she did? She had to do it. There was no choice. And she ultimately saved the Jewish people, all the Jewish people, from this Gzeda. So that's the short answer of it. Let's see here. Okay. So right now I'm going to stop with uh, the questions about Purim. I covered some of them. I want to go over to... Let's see. Two follow-ups. One was about the Mars landing. I spoke about Mars landing last week. Regarding the landing on Mars, what is the significance? So thank you for what you shared. But what is the significance of its launching on Tisha B'av and that it carried an image of the Nechash and Necheshis to symbolize triumph over COVID? Well, launching on Tisha B'av may be connected. If you wish, Hazrach HaPratis, we talk about Tisha B'av being the saddest day of the year, but it's also the goal is to transform it. Tishabov, the Medr says, will be the greatest holiday because it was the greatest darkness. And Tishabov, of course, follows the, the first Tishabov was uh, the Chetam Aragnim. It follows three weeks after the shattering of the tablets. So everything we spoke about before, about transforming Tishabov captures. And Tishabov actually leads to Tubaov, which is compared to Yom Kippur. Tishabov. The word of is, uh, is, uh, the, is the gematria, the gematria of of, not the gematria, the mazel of month of of is Aryeh, Rosh Tevis El, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Heshainer Rabbah, all being born out of the darkness of Tisha B'av. That's a Yeshleim Abedarachevshe, my own speculation. Nechash and Necheshes is a similar thing, using the Nochash that, that, that has the toxins to transform and heal, which became a symbol, a medical symbol. In this case, healing of COVID. So it's a very central theme um, to, uh, to the concept of Hesapcha and transformation. Another question that came in about Betochen, which was episode 344. Okay, I, as I always say, I, I read all uh, questions and comments. So this one is not a, uh, a uh, flattering one. I really did not like your answer last week. This is two weeks ago regarding Betochen, except for the part where you said I don't have an answer. I appreciate that. I know that you know much more than me, but according to what I've learned, the essence of think good and it will be good is that by truly relying on Hashem, from the depths of our souls, we will see revealed good. Not good that needs to be rationalized, explained, or interpreted as good. Rather, an actual positive outcome. We have, we have heard the stories. The guy in his wagon with no money going to pay his landlord eventually stopped and offered a sale that paid for it. The story of the Tzamech Sadiq himself where he told the Chassid to trach good good think good and it will be good. And I believe that it works. I've seen it work in my own life. The question is when it, when it, the question of course is when it does not work. Are there some situations where even the greatest betochen in the world will not work? Would that be a contradiction to betochen as we understand it? Think good and it will be good is an extremely popular concept in, Chabad, in Labavitch and we spread the message to the world too. Please help me understand the issue and I ask you to dig deeper to dig deep and answer with depth instead of a superficial answer. Thank you. Frankly, I thought my answer was not superficial, but I appreciate your words. Maybe it was not enough, and maybe it needs more, and I acknowledge that. It's always it's, these topics are always worthy digging deeper and going further. This is Sikha, the famous Sikha in Chelek Lamedvov of the Rebbe, the first Sikha Shmois. He talks a lot about Taragut Vedzangut. We're talking before the fact or after the fact. Before the fact, not just faith, but betochen, actual trust. Think good, and you absolutely believe it will be good. I believe is that what I said. That's what I said there, and that is betochen. Now, if it doesn't end up, God always is, runs the show. He can do it as He sees fit. 
The fact that it didn't happen that way, first of all, may be part of the mysteries we don't understand. Perfectly fine. Number two, maybe it is good and we haven't seen the good yet. It'll take time till it's revealed. Even though the good means it will be good and revealed on our terms. Or you could find other explanations. So there's no contradiction at all. People have had true betochen. Right, the third explanation I was going to say is that the good comes out in some other ways. There are people who have suffered something. They had betochen that would end up being the way they wanted. Someone should live. And that person ends up not living, God forbid. But their life is blessed in other ways. And God gives them tremendous good. So we have to put things into context. And again, it's always God that decides at the end. We do not, we are not God, but, but our thinking good opens up channels of goodness. And we completely believe that firmly, absolutely, without conditions. That's what I would add to what I've said. Maybe I said it then as well, but if not, that's a little addition here. Okay, so that's follow-up. Now, oh boy, always run out of time. That's how it is. Let me do the chassidus question. And then I'll do the essays. Okay, let's see this question. Here's the this question. How do you explain the yem yem of shushim purim cotton that stones benefit when words of Torah are spoken when you tread on them? Okay, so here's the full question. And the yem yem for the 15th of other, others, remember yem yem is, is a shnasa ibur, so other rishin, shushim purim cotton. The Rebbe writes that in the time to come, meaning the asid love in the future, stones, he brings the pasuk, evam mikir tizak, that, that the time will come, stones and other inanimate objects will be able to talk, will talk. And they will complain that people walked over them without saying words of Torah. And that the stones have been in place for thousands of years waiting for Jews to discuss Torah while walking on these stones. How do stones benefit when words of Torah are spoken in their vicinity? Or in this case, treading on them. Just that there will be stones that complain in the future, but there will also be stones that say thank you to those who did say Torah while treading tr- on them. Okay. Well, if you look in the exact Lushen of the Yemim, you see, it says also that presently, inert creations are mute. Though trodden upon, they remain silent. What does that mean? The Abishta creates everything in existence. Even a Daimim has a Nefesh Ademamis, it has a spirit, or else it wouldn't exist, it has an energy. That energy. The Alter Rebbe speaks about it in Tanya, Shayichud Vamuna, the Nefesh Memes. However, that energy is in a concealed state. That's why the stone does not speak, the stone does not walk, it doesn't grow. Other forms of life, Semeach grows, but also doesn't speak. Animals do cry out, they have sound. Human beings have Dibur with Seichel and everything that a human being has. Because there's energy in everything, it's not unthinkable. And as a matter of fact, it makes total sense, especially in science today, that since there's energy in there, it's impacted, whether you see it or not. We know today, especially in the subatomic world, quantum mechanics, that everything is impacted by everything. So even though the stone doesn't necessarily see a physical reaction, but energy around it has an impact. And as a matter of fact, there are stones, minerals, that give off light, that give even off certain radioactivity, and other forms, other forces. So therefore it makes total sense that whatever happens in the vicinity of these stones, Evamikir Tizak means the stone on the wall, but also the stones on the ground, they absorb the experiences around them, especially when you know the rules of quantum mechanics that the observer impacts the thing he's observing. So it's completely logical, makes total sense that the day will come when we will reveal and see these impact that the stones will be able to react and say absolutely thank you to those that elevated it, that spoke Torah and used the stones as being part of a greater purpose and mission. Just like fruit or vegetables or other things we consume and make a bracha and use it l'shem shamayim. At the same time, there will be stones that will complain and say you tread on me. What right do you have to trade on me? I've never transgressed. Like he says at the end here, you too are just like an animal because you didn't speak Torah, the stones say. You did not live up and did not reveal the purpose of why I exist, the stone exists, the stones exist. And you impacted me in a negative way. 
So we have to understand things in a more subtle form. It's not always physically seen, but energy, when you, give, when you behave in a good way, vibes affect your environment on all levels. Human beings, animals, vegetable, and also the inanimate. Okay. With that, let me go to... We're in the sixth annual My Life Scissors Applied Essay and Creative Contest. We're up to the 16th place winners. The first essay in English is First Love Yourself by Sarah Friedman, age 18, student, yeshiva schools, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. So it talks about how self-esteem being the biggest challenge in our times, one of the biggest challenges, and how we reach of a haftarecha kamoicha, kamoicha, how do you reach self-love, understanding what the soul is? That's this essay. The essay in Hebrew, men, simcha adgar b'hachayim, joy, challenge of life. Simcha bunim Feldman, educator Beishemesh, Israel. And it's exactly that, how to achieve simcha based a lot on Tanya, some stories, powerful essay in how to deal with simcha, even when you're dealing with negative situations. The essay in Hebrew by women, Matzovi Ruach B'Mishnah Sarebi, moods, the vicissitudes and moods in a person's life, in the Torah of the Rebbe, Esther Meislish, educator Kfar Chabad Israel, and cites a letter from the Rebbe, a very interesting letter, that everybody goes through moods. That's part of human nature. It talks about how to ride and navigate through these moods, Apich Siddis Apitera. And finally, the creative, the creative track, the creative contribution. What is within a 3D model? It actually means like a, like a sculptor, not of stone, of wood. Naomi Deitch, age 17, student, based Hannah Orange, Connecticut, New Haven, Connecticut, from New Haven, Connecticut. What is within? Talking about how instead of looking out for solutions, it's all Kodave Lecha, right near you. Very interesting image. All these essays and the creative can be seen. The English and the creative can be seen at chassidahsupply.com. Just go to the essay winners. And the Hebrew ones have a, spe- a special website, a Hebrew website, diralo.org. With that, we conclude episode 346 of My Life, Chassidah Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. May it continue to be a growing joy going from the three days of the Purim Meshulash, Friday, Shabbat, Sunday, going into the week and the rest of the month, Misma Gula, Gula, March to Gula, Hamitiz Vashlema, even before the end of this month and even before Pesach. Everyone have a very freilich and chedesh Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.